Hello, everyone, and welcome to the LifeSphere podcast, where we aim to learn more about the people and the processes that help contribute to the success in the life science industries. Today, I have as my guest, Michelle Johnson, who I'm very excited to talk about. Michelle is Chief Executive Officer of Metrum Research Group. And Michelle has over 20 years of experience in strategy, operations, marketing, and business management, covering multiple industries. As CEO of Metrum Research Group, Michelle is responsible for providing strategic leadership, management, and direction to ensure the company is fulfilling its mission and goals. Michelle holds an MBA from Babson College with a concentration in business analytics and a Bachelor of Arts degree in advertising and public relations from the University of Central Florida. Welcome, Michelle. I'm really excited. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Great. So maybe you could start by telling us just a little bit about what Metrum does and kind of maybe what makes Metrum stand out. Yeah, absolutely. So we are Metrum Research Group. Um, we're a decision informatics company, and we specialize in modeling and simulation products and services in the pharma and biotech industries. Um, so we work with decision-making teams in helping them take a quantitative approach to drug development. Um, we work with our clients as a service provider, and we also offer products, including Metworks, which is a cloud-based platform that allows scientists to conduct these kinds of analyses um, most effectively and efficiently. Um, so, mm -hmm. but most importantly, we're a vision and mission driven company. Um, so our vision is to be a diverse world-class team transforming biomedical decision-making to improve health for all. And that's kind of what ties us all together here at Metrum. That's awesome. So maybe you can talk a little bit about what does that kind of mean uh, the work that you're doing as it relates to, you know, there's so many different challenges and unmet needs in the life sciences right now. And, you know, there's so much that can be done. And this kind of work really probably contributes, quite frankly, to so many different areas of it. Yeah, sure. So I would say one of the key things that um, kind of helps us stand out is that we're at the intersection of science, technology, and data. And we have been for many years. The company was founded in 2004, so we're 19 years old. Nice. Um, we still act a bit like a startup. Um, we've got just under 100 employees, um, scientists, technologists, operations staff. Um, and so we've been doing this work for, for many, many years. Um, we were fortunate to be thought leaders at the time when the company was founded. Um, you know, not every decision maker was using data to make decisions back then. And we were in the right place at the right time. And our founders had a passion to really bring a quantitative approach to decision making um, with unique skill sets um, that weren't really offered in the market at the time. And so um, over the years, as decision makers have become more open to using data to make their decisions, particularly in pharma, um, our company has um, evolved and grown um, both in number of employees and our revenue, but also in the impact that we're making. Um, and so what really helps us uh, stand out, I think, one of the key things is that 
we um, are committed to giving back to the community. So um, we have a very strong commitment to open science and uh, developing open source tools. Um, this manifests through hours and hours of scientific content that's freely available to the external community um, via our website. So folks can uh, go on our website and learn about what we do and how we do it and learn themselves. Um, so we, you know, Ooh. for many years, we've had people come up to us at an exhibit booth or, you know, at a meeting and say, oh my gosh, years ago, I learned how to do PKPD modeling from you on your website. And uh, it's just really fulfilling to hear that. Um, so that's a, that is something that I think in our community, um, people know about Metrum and really appreciate about Metrum. Um, and it's a commitment that we've made from the beginning. You know, sometimes we're asked, how can you afford to do that? You know, because being a mostly services company, we have to take people off of billable work to, to make that happen. Right. And um, of course, our response is, well, how could we afford not to do that? Um, but that's because we built from the beginning, we built that, um, that commitment into our business model. Um, mm -hmm. Now, also, I should say that it's, you know, it's great for the community. It also has built our brand. So we position as thought leaders, as innovators, as um, those as scientists that others look to for um, expertise. Um, and so, um, you know, having that commitment to open science and open source tool development has even positioned our brand to be kind of the premium provider that we are. Um, so that's a, that is a, definitely a key differentiator for us. I would say another thing that um, sets us apart is that we take a multidisciplinary approach to problem solving. Um, so we have some core competencies here at Metrum, um, including PKPD modeling, um, quantitative systems pharmacology, statistical modeling, and of course our technology and engineering data science um, capabilities. And so when a customer comes to us with a challenge or a question, we first work with them on refining the problem statement or refining the question, making sure we get the right question before we start answering it. Um, right, and we right, do right. that by taking a multidisciplinary approach. So we have statisticians and PKPD modelers, and we have technologists. And so we all kind of um, take a, a broader approach or a more open-minded approach to what is the question and what is a good strategy or what are some strategy options to actually um, gain insight around this question or to answer the question? And so, um, you know, other other service providers, not even in our industry, but, you know, if you're a hammer, everything's a nail. You know, if, if you're a web designer and you write JavaScript, then you're going to look for a job that, you know, you could write JavaScript. And so we try really hard to not hold one hammer. Um, now we of course have very strong competencies in the areas that we've developed over the years, but because we take that multidisciplinary approach, we can really serve the customer um, better because we're we're not um, just solving the problem the one way that we know how to or that we have in the past. Um, so right. that's another point of differentiation for us. Right. So the kind of story that you're telling about, you know, back in the day, we'll call it, which that wasn't that long ago, but in technology speak, we've come light years since 2004, right? Um, and even since 2017. The conversation that you're having about this combination of the science, the technology, the data, it's it's kind of the whole industry conversation right now, digital transformation, technology 4.0, pharma 4.0, life sciences, all the 4.0s, right? 
um, when we get to 5.0, who knows what it'll look like. But <laughs> but I think that this whole conversation is really compelling. And a lot of people approach it from a variety of different uh, viewpoints, like you said. And I'm wondering, how do you see, because you're in it, you know, what's your view as you look at the world that you're working in with this whole conversation of digital transformation? I personally see it as just like this wide open opportunity. Some people are a little more cautious, some people very cautious, but um, I mean, the tools are probably endless now that you have more technology behind what you're able to do. Yeah, absolutely. So the the digital transformation movement is um, certainly having an impact um, on our business in a good way. Um, mm -hmm. This is what we're we're all about, right? Being at the intersection of science and tech and data. Um, and so it's great to see that the market is demanding more of this, um, of these services and these products that are very well aligned with what we have been offering and continue to offer. We are seeing um, renewed or new commitments to digital transformation um, within our, our customer companies. And we work with big pharma all the way down to the small emerging biotech. So we've our portfolio includes um, all different sizes. Um, and what we've seen is increased budgets, increased commitment to digital transformation, which of course opens doors for us, particularly um, with respect to our products. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, the product that we offer networks is something that we built in-house for our analysts to be able to do their modeling work um, with cloud computation and, you know, kind of take a completely different approach to the way that we build our models. Mm -hmm. And um, because we're able to do so efficiently and effectively, our customers saw the the benefit of that and said, well, we want to do that. And so we commercialized the thing that we had built for ourselves. That was almost a decade ago. And mm -hmm. um, so, you know, the, a lot of, um, there's been a great adoption of that product, but seeing the digital transformation energy has um, <clears throat> maybe um, given us even more opportunity to um, have conversations with higher level executives because yeah. you know buzzwords are have a pros and cons right, right. but when right. an executive exactly. has a budget that is dedicated right. to something that aligns with your offerings that's not a bad bad buzzword for you um, right. and right. so we've we've seen opportunities um open up um you know from from our perspective when we do our analysis um within the digital transformation ideas you know we like to take um, a variety of information sources into an analysis project. So we're all about generating insight and, you know, data that comes from a clinical study, a clinical trial, that's really important data. It's not the only data that we need to understand the disease or understand how the drug's working. And so we like to bring in a variety of information sources from even outside of that trial. And so that represents a challenge when it comes to real world data or registry data or data that's, you know, in this repository, not that repository. And, you know, it's kind of an operational challenge, but the whole digital transformation um, movement has really started to put frameworks and, and practices in place that help get the data and the technology and the scientific know-all 
to the the analyst who's then analyzing the data and trying to understand uh, what the data are saying. And so we see this in um, the emergence of frameworks like FAIR, findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable. Um, mm-hmm. These things that are happening around us are um, really beneficial because we're all about getting, you know, we don't we don't generate data, we don't create data, we don't even really manage or store data, but we analyze right. it. So our our big challenge that we've realized over the last year or two is the data are out there, but the analysts can't get to to what they need. And so for us, the the kind of focus on digital transformation has opened doors in terms of um, solutioning around those challenges. Um, So that's a that's a really um, a a great opportunity for us. And the other thing I'd say about digital transformation, again, this goes back to like data driven decision makers Mm -hmm. um, or decision makers who know that they want to leverage um, data and technology in their decision making. But maybe they don't know how we um, are building more and more visualization applications to empower a non-technical decision maker to really understand the data and make informed decisions. Um, So, you know, when we build a model, in order to understand these models, you know, you have to create plots and figures and and that's all useful, but they're static, right? So when you instead put on top of a model some sort of visualization application, then you can play with the model and you can simulate different decision paths and you can better understand what the data are saying. And we liken it to a video game, right? When you first started Mm -hmm. playing a video game, you're like, you don't know how to jump, you don't know how to walk, but you figure it out by trial and error and you start to learn how the system works. And so we're seeing more and more decision makers are, um, not just open to it, but are kind of requiring that that's how they're they interact with the information, with the data in a way that's accessible to them and can they can make sense of things. And that's that's only going to help, you know, um, with our mission, with defeating disease, with, you know, getting therapies to patients, um, because if decision makers have what they need in order to make really good decisions about drug development, then that's just going to get the more effective, efficient path to drug development, getting those therapies into patients' hands. Faster in less than 16 years, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hopefully. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so I think you touched on something kind of data democratization, democratization and maybe making it um, a little more standardized. We work in not your space, but we do work in the data space and the challenges of making sure that this data are the same as that data. And are we using the same data the same way so that we have the same insights and we agree on all that? It's challenging. And, you know, there's a lot of groups working on it. ISPE, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of thought behind it. But there, like to your point, there's a lot of data out there and it's in a lot of formats. Um, and in some cases, it's not meant to be consumed by everyone in some in some manner or another. So this whole um, empowering thinking by data driven, while it's been talked about for a long time now, it's really coming to light. And I think that's exciting, like you've really highlighted here. Um, so you brought up something and, and it's it's one of the common conversations, you know, how do we get better therapies to market faster? Um, you know, and, and in some cases, you know, winning the race against time because the patient can't wait, like all this conversation. And and I wonder if, 
if you can just talk a little bit about, you know, there's a lot of pressure in some cases to kind of hurry up and get stuff, hurry up and analyze, because we know the timeline is short in some areas in therapeutics. Um, but yet by the same token, it has to be right. So there's this balance. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that, because I think it's it's so interesting to understand. And from your perspective, you you got to kind of talk to both sides of the both sides of the of the data story, right? You want it really fast, but we want it right. Yeah, that's a really good point. And um, we're no strangers to that balance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the race against time, I mean, even in the last, you know, eight to 12 months, we're hearing more and more that our customers are facing the demand or the expectation of of shrinking timelines, particularly from when they receive data from a trial to when they submit results to the agency. So, you know, these are very important days. You can't even mm-hmm. say weeks or months anymore. Um, and we're seeing more and more pressure on our customers to deliver um, quickly and as, as quickly as possible. Um, there definitely is a, a balance there, right? I loved um, during COVID, the CEO of Pfizer said, we'll go at the speed of science. Right. We're not going to go faster than that. And and there is um, that's something that we kind of ascribe to. We're not going to try to speed up science uh, where it's not possible or where your quality is um, is jeopardized. Um, However, there are ways that we can speed things up um, without compromising the integrity of the science. Um, And I think that having these expectations, requirements, demands, whatever you want to call them, is forcing our industry um, and people in our space to be creative and to really think innovatively about where we can save time. Um, Of course, there are non-negotiables. There are certain things that you can't speed up or that, you know, wouldn't be wise to speed up. But could we be um, investing in um, planning ahead and simulating different decision paths that we anticipate um, based on what we do know about um, the drug or about data that we've seen thus far about the drug. So before the data come out of a trial, you know, can we simulate different scenarios? And then we maybe have some something to start with when we, we get the actual data in. Um, or, or investing in, you know, platforms, like looking at disease progression, looking at systems or more mechanistic models to better understand, you know, the biological systems or the disease, you know, if we, again, we're all about insight, right? And so the more we understand about the context, then when we get, you know, that like really timely data, you know, you're integrating it into an understanding that you already have. So it's not completely new and fresh. So those are a couple ways that we're seeing customers and and we're trying to propose um, some creativity and innovation around how we think about timeline. Um, mm. The other, of course, um, opportunity here is AI and machine learning. And right. here at Metrum, we think about AI and machine learning in two major buckets. The first is in our analytical methods. And um, machine learning algorithms and, you know, that space, a lot of what we've been doing over the last 19 years is 
in that space and, you yeah. know, continues to develop. And now that there's more research and more tools out there, that's only going to accelerate some of the things that that we've been studying and researching and deploying, quite honestly. So there's the analytical methods, and that's a whole other other conversation. But the other bucket here at Metrum that we, the way that we think about AI and ML is in productivity and efficiency. And this, of course, is how everybody needs to be thinking about AI and machine learning. You know, I've heard it likened to electricity or the, the PC, right? Like every business will run with some sort of support from AI and machine learning, just like every business runs with electricity. We're not a, right. all power companies, right? We don't all have to generate the electricity, but right. we all use it. And so um, we're exploring how can we use these new technologies and methodologies to really increase productivity and efficiency without compromising the integrity of the science. And this could be a key differentiator for us because we're seen as thought leaders in our space. If we can layer in efficiencies using these new methodologies, we could share that with our customers, we could build that into our product. And so um, even beyond gaining efficiency for our own, the generation of the deliverables for our own customers, you know, we could actually um, release that to the community or productize it. Um, and then, you know, one of the challenges that we have here at Metrum is, um, finding really solid talent. Like there just aren't a lot of scientists that do what we do in the world. Um, so sometimes right. we have to grow them and, you know, we've had to be creative with where we recruit from. And we're very fortunate that we have the most amazing team. Um, and, and it is a challenge. And so can, you know, we're constantly thinking about how do we ensure that our scientists are performing activities that they are uniquely suited to perform and mm -hmm. that other tangential activities or supportive activities are maybe provided by others. And those others could be humans or those others could be machines. So looking at right. you know, productivity and efficiency through that lens, not to speed up the science or speed up the scientific activities, but rather to release the scientist from those other you know, um, kind of operational tasks or, um, you know, just the, the, the less, um, the less innovative, the less scientifically driven tasks that are just necessary and part of their, their workflow. If we could automate that, if we could, you know, um, provide additional, uh, resources, like I said, including humans or machines, um, to really put them in a place where they can provide value, where they're uniquely suited to provide that value. That's a massive opportunity. And I think that will, of course, um, help us in the race against time, because if you can shrink down all of the kind of housekeeping that a scientist needs to get through in order to get to the science, um, then, you know, they have more time to think and to to do some great science and also that may even shrink timelines because you've kind of uh, diminished all of the, the more mundane tasks yeah i um we work in process automation um a lot and one of the things i try and maybe liken um i like your idea of electricity i use the telephone a lot um, we used to have switchboard operators, then we had rotary phones, then we had push button phones, and now we just ask for our phone to call the person that we need to call. We used to have phone books, now they're on our phones. We still make phone calls though. Um, we just make them better, faster, and probably longer now, but, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
you know, no more cord that you had to run into the dining room so nobody could hear what you were talking about. Um, but, you know, the the process is improving and it becomes better, right? Like a phone does so much more than just make phone calls now. And that's something that, you know, it makes everything that just that much more efficient. Um, and I think process improvement and automation in areas that are, again, like I said, we don't have switchboard operators anymore. It's an automatic switching system, right? So that's an improvement. Did we need to have the person making the phone call know how to switch? No. So you're still just making a phone call. So improving all of that backend processing and all that extra heavy lifting that made it possible for you to do it the same thing better, and like you said, more time, that gives you greater opportunities. Um, and, and I like your comment. I, I know we talk about winning the race against time, but sometimes it's having the time to think about what you need to win. Do you know what I mean? And it just gives you that that headspace to kind of have more freedom to think about what do I really need to, to like, what do I need to think about? And that's where I feel like, you know, all of this opportunity is just going to be so, so beneficial. Um, one thing that some folks ask in um, some of the conversations that I hear, particularly in data, you hear about it in modeling and studies, and that is um, the, the process and the energy and the ideas around how do you get the model right? And I'm not talking about whether you use the correct model or not, but back to the data. It's only as good as the data we have. And in some cases, we don't have enough of the good data. And that's not because the data is necessarily bad, but more so maybe we have a gap. We don't have data in this sector or segment or representative population. And I think this talks a little bit to what your point was, how do we get this democratized opportunity for data so that we can have complete data sets, but how do we do that and ensure privacy? You know, the, the million dollar question, right? Um, but I, I love to hear everyone's perspective because every time I talk to someone, they're like, well, I think if we, we did this, I'm on a couple of, of as I said, um, uh, ISP conversations all about this. And how does it move from the clinical trial system? And how does it move through the claims management system? How do we get it into, you know, the whole conversation about that? But the patient privacy is utmost in, in a lot of this. And so I, I just wonder your perspective on, on the topic. It's like, I know it's it's a lot, but. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, <clears throat> so we're fortunate in that most of the data that we process is de-identified or pseudonymized. Um, so we, um, we're very, we, even though it's pseudonymized, it is identifiable. So our systems and our processes are designed as if patient names were in those data sets. But fortunately for us, they aren't. There's no yeah. identifier, <clears throat> which is really um, a, a nice place to be. However, <clears throat> it's really interesting um, to think about the opportunities with real world data. And mm -hmm. we do a lot of our analysis is at the individual level, right? It's not just summary level data. So um, the idea of tokenization is really intriguing, right? Because if we can connect to um, data entries to the same person, mm -hmm. I guess, without identifying the person, 
then we can learn more about them than just what the clinical data set says or what the EHR data set says. We can actually merge those. And I know there's been a lot of work in that space in um, outcomes research and health economics um, for pricing discussions and mm-hmm. um, you know, post-marketing mm-hmm. efforts. Um, but that's a really interesting evolution. Um, the other thing that's interesting here is the idea of data federation, mm-hmm. um, where you're, you know, you're not actually getting a data set. You're basically accessing data sets, building your models, conducting your analysis, and pulling your kind of, for lack of a better term, results, right? And um, how you do that in a reproducible way and um, in a way that you can guarantee that the data you used were the appropriate data to use, that's all, I, I don't understand all that. And I'm not sure if all those uh, wrinkles have been ironed out, but I, I yeah. find that that model really interesting because one of the challenges I think that um, companies like ours have is moving data. It's, you know, even just the size and, you know, right getting data from one repository to another and doing so in a way that is reproducible and um, and you can actually use it once you receive it. Uh, that's a lot, that, that sounds like it shouldn't be that difficult, but, <laughs> but it's very difficult. And so this idea of data federation, I think has some merit. Um, and then, you know, if, if things move into that direction, what's really fascinating is that if data federation takes over, then the proprietary value won't be in the data sets anymore. It will actually be in the algorithms and the models that um, people are building with that data. So that that fits nicely with us because we've never we've never deployed a business model that includes generating data or selling data or anything like that. It's all about the analysis for us. So mm-hmm. that's something that we're exploring. And, and of course, also in relation to our product, you know, our product is used by analysts. And so they have these challenges as well. So we're looking for opportunities to connect with these um, data federations and the providers there. um, And just to, and and the idea of tokenization there as well, Mm -hmm. you know, how can, how can our products and our, our technology offerings, you know, allow for that um, in a, a little bit more of a seamless way? Yeah, that is some exciting stuff, right? So, that's where I'm always like, wow, there's so many different bulls to chase here. Like which one? They're like shiny objects. And you're like, oh, I would love to look at that one. Oh, let me look at this one over here. Um, and then the thing that I think is so awesome is, you know, whatever the sector or the time in space or the area of effort in this continuum to getting product to patient and then continuing to get the product to patient safely. This conversation is really similar. So when you talk post-commercialization and you're looking for auditability of information, it's a very similar conversation about this. Was the data used in research that supports what the research is trying to accomplish? It's like similar conversations, but yet in two very different areas. And this conversation about, again, tokenization we're in supply chain with blockchain and how do we make sure that we know that what it was is still what it is. Um, and when it gets to the patient, does it remain that? And all the things about, um, you know, making sure that there's no fraud present and, you know, all these things. So there's just so many different areas where this conversation is so relevant. Um, and I agree with you, this conversation about democratizing data and then 
you know, the data is the data and it's not really anything that we're going to be spending on because it's expensive uh, as we buy it now. Um, it's just so interesting. Um, so, oh my gosh, I could, I could have like 27,000 more questions in this whole space. It's, <laughs> there's so many things to talk about. But um, we're kind of coming to the end of our time together. And boy, um, so we talk so much about work and technology and science and data. Maybe we take it in a little bit of a more fun direction and just talk about like you and, you know, what do you do in your spare time when you're not solving problems in the data space and creating models and algorithms and all that kind of cool stuff? <laughs> yeah, that's always a fun question to answer. Um, so I love the beach, particularly the ocean. Um, I love the ocean because it's so vast and it's so big and it's very humbling. And, you know, we have a lot of challenges. We have, you know, even just in our in our work um, and we're trying to defeat disease. We're trying to improve health. We're, you know, and we're running into roadblocks right and left. And when I look at the ocean, it's like there's this whole world underneath the surface of the water. Yeah. that has no idea what problems <laughs> I'm facing today and nor do right. they care. And it's just kind of a nice like perspective. Um, yeah. So that's one of the, the things I love and I love to travel and explore new places, eat new food. Um, and I, I really like to read. And for a while I was only reading like business books. And yeah. um, finally I decided to to shift and, and, you know, build in some fiction, build in some biographies and, um, I actually just finished um, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Um, okay. I read it in grad school, but then I just I just read it again with our um, VP of Statistics, which was a great uh, book club for us. Um, but that was really um, that book's great because it's all about biases and decision making, um, mm -hmm. which is extremely relevant in this conversation about AI and machine learning. Um, yeah. So it was interesting to read that book in light of of AI. Um, in today's view versus when you read it before, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, I think I, I'm well aware of a lot more of my biases than I was back then. Um, right. Still have plenty to learn. Um, but then the other book that I'm reading that's such a hoot is it's called You're a Thing and I Love You. And it's by Janelle Shane. And it's about AI. And so she actually um, trained a model to come up with its own pickup lines. And this is the best one. You're a thing and I love you. So it's, oh it's great. She's a God. great writer. Um, it's funny. It's light. She's got these little yeah. cartoons, but it's also really informative. Like it talks mm -hmm. about how these algorithms uh, and, you know, these language models are developed and how they learn. And it's, it's very accessible. It's a great read. So I highly recommend that one. <laughs> You might have a brand new category on our podcast. Now we have to think, what's a great book we can start talking about? I love that. So I go. have read Thinking Fast and Slow, but I have not read Your Thing and I Love You. So I'm going to definitely check that one out. It sounds awesome. It sounds awesome. I just want to thank you. What a great conversation. Like I said, every time I get to talk to, to people, it's just a new way of looking at and thinking about and hearing about the exciting stuff that's going on. So I really want to thank you, Michelle, for your time this afternoon. I cannot tell you how much fun it was to chat with you. And maybe, again, we'll see each other in a, in a crossing somewhere and we'll keep touch on what books you're reading next. That's great. Thank you so much. Okay, great. Thank you.